Welcome to the Vocation and the Common Good podcast. I'm your host, Philip Lorish. Today, I'm glad to introduce you to Victor Boutros, the director of the Human Trafficking Institute, which he founded in 2014. That same year, Victor published The Locust Effect, Why the End of Poverty Requires the End of Violence, with his co-author, Gary Haugen, director of the International Justice Mission. As you'll hear, Victor has long been committed to countering the everyday evils of human trafficking and has a particularly creative approach to addressing the problem. I hope you enjoy our conversation. My God, my God, where I go, glory, where I reap and where I sow. Tell me about the Human Trafficking Institute. What prompted you to start it? I was in the Justice Department's Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit for about 10 years. And we were the first group of federal prosecutors who were focused exclusively on international human trafficking cases all over the United States. And so we'd have a docket of cases. We'd go out, we'd work with FBI or other federal agents to do the cases from investigation all the way through prosecution and sentencing. Along the way, we discovered that there was this kind of interesting problem, which was we had a pretty good set of laws that had come into being. And when we would travel, we'd meet prosecutors and agents who actually were pretty interested in working on human trafficking cases. But we weren't seeing a huge number of convictions coming out of that. And we're trying to figure out why aren't there more cases coming through the pipeline? And I think what we discovered is it seems kind of banal in retrospect, but the way that you learn how to do a new case typically is you just kind of walk down the hall and say, hey, Philip, you're our white collar expert. I would really like to learn how to do some white collar cases. And you say, sure. And so I kind of shadow you for a case. And then next time around, I have a little more responsibility. And before you know it, you're kind of supervising me. And then I've got the hang of it and I'm able to go do these cases. Well, in most of the federal jurisdictions, there just was no one down the hall who had ever done these cases before. And no one wants to fall on their face in a public way. And they cared about the victims and didn't want to mess up the cases for the victims. And so there's just a sense, of, I think, maybe of insecurity, and they weren't happening. How did that aspect of our judicial system actually emerge? You were there at the beginning. It was formed in 2007. It was basically a subunit of the criminal section of the Civil Rights Division, which was already working on human trafficking cases. But they thought there's an opportunity to really specialize, to help our other partners in the field begin to develop some specialized skills to do these cases well. There's also a sense of some of these cases might be really large and multi-jurisdictional, and that's a lot to ask any one U.S. attorney's office to do. But we have the resources and we have national jurisdiction, so that will allow these attorneys to do a case that maybe involves evidence in New York, but also in California and North Carolina and Texas, a larger multi-jurisdictional case. So that was sort of the impetus for it. Did you always want to be a prosecutor? It really happened before I went to law school. I studied philosophy, and that was actually my focus area. And I went to grad school in philosophy and first began to travel in the developing world with some other friends who were part of the university group that I was a part of at Harvard. And I remember going to the developing world expecting to see a bunch of problems when I walked off the plane. And you do, you know, in many parts of the developing world, you walk off and, you know, the shanty houses don't hide themselves and the distended stomachs don't hide themselves and the homelessness doesn't hide itself. It's right there like at the bus station, you can see it right before your eyes. The sickness often is so visible, you can't miss it. And so I expected to see those problems in that category of pain. But as I began to meet people and talk with them, I learned that there were 
groups of people who were experiencing a very different kind of pain that was almost always hidden from view, even from very sophisticated travelers to the developing world. And that was this problem of everyday criminal violence and specifically human trafficking. How did you uncover that? Well, at first it started with other categories of violence. We did some work in some prisons and started interviewing the prisoners and hearing some of their stories. And then later began to travel more in other parts of the developing world where I started to work with International Justice Mission, and which was trying to figure out, can we combat trafficking? And so I was reading about it first and then traveling to see it. But I remember one of the early cases I experienced was this case involving a young girl who was 12, 13 years old, who was in India and she lived in a rural city and went to the big city during the summer to make money for her family. Gets a job there, she's working, basically washing dishes and does earn some money and she's getting ready to head back home to her rural village and she's in the Victoria Station in Mumbai and she's trying to figure out which is the right train and it's a very like crowded, chaotic place and a couple of women kind of direct her to the right train because they're actually on that train as well. So they start moving and then they get some tea together and it turns out the tea is drugged. And so this young woman ends up being sold to a brothel in the red light district of Mumbai for about 250 American dollars and is told that she's going to, from that age, have to provide sex to the customers. And I remember as I experienced that story feeling like just this incredible sense of outrage that how can another human being do this to someone else? And and a sense of compassion, like the tragedy of what's happened. And here her parents are, are waiting at the train station in the rural village and she's not showing up. And, um, and then I think for me, what started to happen is I started to first hear about these stories and then learn more about it and discover that, oh, this is actually replicated on a large scale and started hearing numbers like, you know, there's 21 million trafficking victims globally today, which is more than all the trafficking victims in 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade, which we estimate to be about 12 million. I realized that what happened was I sort of emotionally shut down. You just start to feel so overwhelmed. And I think what happens is that because we're made in the image of God, I think we have this instinct of compassion that when someone else is hurting, we want to draw near to that pain for the purpose of helping. But if we start to believe in our hearts that there's actually nothing we can do to help, that we can't actually impact that pain, then it starts to feel we have to back away. It's like, a, it's like a fire that we're getting too close to that we can't put out. And so it's gonna burn us. And so we back away. And we see this in sort of just relationships that yeah. we have with other people. And, yeah. But we also see it in the trafficking space. And I think that actually is one of the core challenges in the trafficking space right now is that you have people who hear these stories, start to hear these numbers and they start to feel overwhelmed. And they start to feel like, I know I should do something, but in my heart, truly, I wouldn't say it out loud. I wouldn't even necessarily articulate it in my mind. But deep down, I really don't believe that anything you tell me is going to make a difference. What I really believe is that five years from now, whatever we do is just going to be a drop in the ocean and the numbers are going to be exactly the same and I'm going to feel terrible. So tell me about having an experience like that and then taking the LSAT, going and sitting through torts and <laughs> uh, civil procedure, pursuing a legal education, joining a practice. 
What sustained you during that process? Why did you decide, okay, law is the thing rather than something else? I think for me, I started to see that trafficking was sort of grouped into a few different buckets of interventions. One bucket was trying to reduce the vulnerability of potential victims. And that was through awareness campaigns or poverty alleviation efforts or education efforts, all of which were really important. And then there's another bucket that was trying to help those who were trafficked but aren't anymore, survivors of trafficking, who need incredible amounts of support and counseling, sometimes vocational training and reintegration support, also really, really important. But I think what I began to see is that neither of those interventions has any impact on the trafficker's business model. The traffickers actually don't care what happens to their victims after they're done with them. This came home in a really powerful way. We had a a trafficker who had pled guilty to a sex trafficking crime when we were at the Justice Department. And this trafficker asked where the victims were. And of course, the answer was, we're not telling you. And he laughed and said, you know what? We actually like it when you guys spend money on shelters. We said, why? He said, because I'm done with them. I'm unlucky I got caught, but for my friends out there, they've already moved on to the next victim. They've moved on to the next meal. They're not making any less money when you take care of cleaning up our mess. So good for her. I hope she's doing well. It was this very crass, but I think accurate window into the way that traffickers view this. And it's a business model where they can make money. And I think on the other side of reducing victim vulnerability, they had a very similar feeling. It was a sense of, look, this is like a stocked pond with 2 billion fish. If you want to try and reduce the vulnerability of 100,000 fish, that's fine. But what's going to happen is I'm going to put the same bait in the water and I'm going to walk away at the end of the day with the same number of fish. You're not going to change my business model at all. And I think that is when I realized that trafficking is this opportunity to actually kind of move upstream and stop the trafficking at its source, which is the trafficker. The trafficker is actually making a fairly rational business decision. They want to make money either through commercial sex, which we call sex trafficking, or through some other industry, which we call labor trafficking. They know they need laborers to do it. Either they're going to use voluntary laborers who they got to pay a competitive wage and keep happy or they'll go somewhere else, or they could use force and threats and violence, and then they can pay them almost nothing. And if there's no consequence for that, if you don't get in trouble for that, then you just realize I'm going to make that much more money. And so we see this very clear pattern emerging where the business of trafficking explodes wherever the laws are not enforced. That's the risk calculus. It doesn't matter if there's laws in the books. It's are those laws enforced? And that same process works in reverse that once you have a little bit of enforcement, all of a sudden it changes the risk calculus. If law enforcement could come in and seize my profits and take away my business and my family and my freedom and I go to jail, now it's too risky. I'd rather just pay a few extra dollars to voluntary laborers than risk all that. And you see trafficking start to collapse. How do you change the risk calculus then in a scenario where the laws seem to be sufficient but unenforced? That's where we started trying to figure out, well, why aren't they being enforced? And when I first learned about trafficking, part of the problem was the law. I think something like 18% of the countries in the world had laws that conformed with the international standards at the time. And now all the countries have laws against human trafficking. So there's been this sort of tectonic shift in the legislative landscape. And then accompanying that, just over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a similar tectonic shift in the political will to actually do something about trafficking that's largely motivated by self-interest. And so a couple of sources of that, one has been 
that there was a law passed here in the U.S. that created a new office in the State Department that required it to issue a report annually that essentially assigns a grade to every country on their trafficking practices. And if you get a failing grade, you're subject to economic sanctions from the U.S. You could lose funding from multilateral banks. And so now all of a sudden, whether some underage sort of non-voting girl is stuck in a brothel somewhere, moves from the good idea pile to the urgent priority pile, because now it could actually impact my economic relationship with the United States. And so that has been a driver of some political will. We've also seen that with rising globalization, there's been an interest in emerging market investment. And so multinational corporations have looked for opportunities to invest in these communities where there's maybe a a large volume of of potential low-skilled labor or uh, an emerging middle class of consumers who are interested in purchasing consumer products. And they're now increasingly concerned about trafficking their supply chains because there's been a rise of legislation that can create significant legal problems for companies when they have that. And as one executive told me a couple of years ago, we're one New York Times story away from decimating shareholder value. That's a concern. And so I think governments are realizing that and realizing, hey, if we can measurably decimate trafficking within our borders, then we have a competitive advantage versus peer countries in being able to recruit and retain that investment. And so all this has happened that it's just created this sort of self-interested reasons in addressing trafficking. So you start to have people at the top of the food chain shouting down the chain of command, guys, get this fixed. Trafficking is now becoming a roadblock to me accomplishing the economic objectives that I care about. And on some level, bad PR for all of us. Exactly. Very much so. And so the problem has been up till now that each of these dominoes has fallen. You've seen the legislative domino fall. You've seen the political will domino fall. But I think the last domino has been the people at the bottom of the chain have to be capable of responding to those incentives that are raining down from their superiors. And at the moment, many of them have almost no training in even basic criminal investigation. So tell me who's at the bottom of the chain? Police, prosecutors, and judges. You can tell them all you want. Go do these human trafficking cases. And they're saying, look, we haven't done this before. The way that you do these cases is fairly specialized. To be successful at them, you have to have a certain skill set that doesn't come with a lot of other criminal investigative skill sets. Sounds like that's back to the DOJ, walk down the hall. It was a remarkably similar situation to what we were seeing in the States, which is we also had good laws, we had political will, but there wasn't enforcement because that capacity wasn't there. And so we tried to address that at the Justice Department by helping launch a pilot where we invited the 94 federal districts to compete for six slots. And then the six slots that were selected, these six federal districts, We basically went in and we would build a mini specialized team of prosecutors and agents that would be focused on human trafficking enforcement. And then we would take those guys and put them through a mini academy where we'd walk through the strategies that we'd seen be effective in terms of how to identify cases, how to put together the raid plan, how to actually do a trauma-informed victim interview, how to put together your trial strategy. And then we would just pair them up with other former federal prosecutors in the human trafficking prosecution unit who would start working cases with them. And so you had another attorney, another teammate that had done this before. And what we found is that within two years, these six districts had more convictions than the other 88 federal districts combined. And it wasn't really rocket science. It was actually just applying this tried and true model of how we build specialized skills in any profession that matters to us. So my parents were physicians and they went and got the core knowledge they needed at med school. 
And then they weren't ready to put someone under the knife. They went through this residency process where you're paired up with a senior surgeon who works with you day in and day out, building your skills, solving complications that come up. And only at the end of that process have you developed the right skills to go do this work. You're rightly an expert at that point. That's right. I think you've developed those expertise. And that's the same model of what's the core knowledge I need? And then I need to build skills with someone else who's done this before. And we see that in education to student teaching. We see it in psychology, you know, with the, with the, the sort of practicums that you do before you actually are a fully fledged licensed psychologist. And we also see it in law enforcement. So our director of law enforcement operations, who's a longtime FBI agent, he helped lead the FBI's human trafficking portfolio for a number of years. He went to the academy at Quantico where he learned some core knowledge. And then he had a field training officer, helped him build his skills. And that model is the same model that we use to build human trafficking enforcement skills. But it was a model that those in developing countries who had the same problem couldn't access. So they started they started reaching out to the State Department and saying, hey, you know, we got this bad grade. We'd like some training, but we don't really want to be trained by a foreign service officer or by a social worker or an advocacy group any more than the ophthalmologist wants to be trained by those guys. They want to be trained by a peer who's done it before. And so the State Department would reach out to the human trafficking prosecution unit and say, can you guys help out? And our boss would maybe send someone on the team for a few days. And what we found very quickly is that that just was not moving the needle at all because that's not how we build specialized skills. You can't build specialized skills with folks who often haven't had even basic training in criminal investigation during three days together at the Sheraton. I don't care how winsome you are and how great your PowerPoint is, it's not happening. And we would come back and we'd go back to the State Department and say, well, what's the plan? And they're like, hey, it's done. Success, we had the training. Like, but are there more cases being done? Are there, are there actually more arrests or more convictions? And the answer was they really didn't know. But we had a meeting. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so we realized that trafficking is actually exploding in the developing world. About 93% of the world's victims are in developing countries. That's where we have all these risk-sensitive traffickers who just a little bit of enforcement risk and they're out. And we saw that this was an incredible leveraged opportunity to stop trafficking on a wide scale We now had an answer to the question of how do we do this? We had a successfully piloted model, but tragically the number of people who have done multiple trafficking cases globally is still very small. And they're mostly sequestered in the justice departments of the West, in the US and Western Europe and Australia. And we wanna grow that pool and help solve that problem. So we left the justice department to launch the Human Trafficking Institute to partner with governments, basically to do three things, to go in and help them vet and build specialized enforcement units of police and prosecutors whose primary job becomes doing human trafficking enforcement. And then we put them through a mini academy where we walk them through the strategies that we've seen be effective. And then we embed in their office former FBI agents, former prosecutors who've done these cases before and who office with them and work with them day in and day out on their cases, helping them move their cases forward, solve case-related challenges, create transparency and accountability that sort of sucks the oxygen out of corruption risk and create that little bit of enforcement that starts to create big drops in prevalence. The goodness of the Lord is the kindness of the Lord with every breath we take. The gift of life and grace, the power of the Lord is the meekness of the Lord who humanity with brave humility let your mercy 
flow through us. Culturally speaking, it seems like most broad social movements after the civil rights movement attach on to the rhetoric and the sort of basic script of the civil rights movement that King led. The anti-trafficking movement trades in some of the same tropes and rhetoric, and rightly so, is geared towards emancipation, liberation, freedom. And one of the things that I've wanted to ask you about is how you retain care or honor the humanity of the trafficker. One of King's just genius insights was that as soon as we start to hate the other, they have won. Law, by definition, is an adversarial process. It's right to want to put a trafficker away. I am totally compelled by your vision of saying, let's cut this off at the root rather than the sort of symptom. But how, in the process of training people to take on these cases, is there a way to retain empathy or even love for the person who is so responsible for such evil. Yeah, it's something we thought a lot about. Um, You know, one of the gifts of the work that we did at the Justice Department was we got to spend a lot of time with victims and get to know them and hear their stories. And we also got to spend time with traffickers who would plead guilty and have to walk through their business model from A to Z in exchange for cooperating against their co-conspirators and a reduced sentence. And, And you hear their stories and they're not all moral monsters. We had one trafficker who shared with us as he was talking about, like, why did you get into this? And he said, well, my uncle told me that there are two things I could do. He said, either you can run drugs or you can run girls. Now, if you run drugs, sooner or later, you will get caught and you will go to jail for a very long time. If you run girls, sooner or later, they will get caught and they may go to jail for a little bit, but you probably won't. He said this and he said, I have egg on my face now because I did get caught, but that was why I chose to do this. And so you hear their stories and they do have stories. And I think in terms of the poetry of love uh, or the law of love that comes from our faith, the first most loving thing we can do is actually restrain the trafficker. It's unkind and unloving to them to allow them to continue to abuse and degrade other human beings that are made in the image of God. And I thought the best time this was ever exemplified was actually a non-trafficking case, but it was a very powerful case. It was a hate crime case that I did in Texas. And there was a neo-Nazi who wanted to move up in rank in his neo-Nazi gang. And the way to achieve the next rank was to murder an African-American. That was the next thing to do. And so this is in a small town in Texas and he was being a coward and he decided, okay, well, I'm going to target the most vulnerable African-American in this community. And there was a well-known member of the community who was physically, mentally disabled. There's this large African-American church that actually in this moment of great beauty, there was a white church that had outgrown it and just deeded the church outright for free to this African-American congregation. And so they now had this beautiful historic building that had lots of space They converted some of that space into apartments where they were caring for people who were having a harder time. And so this particular disabled man lived in one of those church apartments. And so the neo-Nazi had the idea, well, I'll kill two birds with one stone. I'll torch the church with him inside it and then tag it with neo-Nazi graffiti so that my gang will get credit for both the church arson and the murder of the African-American. And so that's what he did. He torched the church, tagged it with graffiti, by God's grace, this man that he was intending to kill 
escaped and was not harmed, but not for lack of trying. And so we went in and we were able to flip a couple of key witnesses and leverage a plea. And so he pled guilty and was getting ready to go to jail for a long time. So when I talked to this African-American church and I said, okay, here's the process. The federal courthouse is like an hour and a half away, but I'm gonna be there for the sentencing and you and anybody in your church, you're welcome to come. And you will have an opportunity to kind of share an impact statement, talk to the judge about what happened and how this impacted you. He said, okay. And so I get ready to go for sentencing and the whole church shows up. Like I had to go find a special conference room to seat all these people that showed up. It was amazing, Philip, to see the disparate generational response that was represented in that room. There were these kind of trendy, cool, like college students who were like, where are we? Like, is this the 21st century? Like, how is this happening in the 21st century? I can't believe that this happened. And then there were the sort of gray-haired grandmothers on the other end who were like, I can't believe someone from Washington, D.C. is showing up to do something about it. And it was just this sort of shift in the expectation of enforcement just in a single generation. And at the close of the sentencing, they spoke to the judge about what had happened and the pastor of the church is being interviewed outside the courthouse with his entire congregation standing behind him. A minority reporter is interviewing him and she's visibly upset. She's trying to maintain her professional composure, but she's like, you pastor said that you forgive him. You said that in open court, you forgive him. Do you understand what he did? He's like, yeah, we do. It's like, how can you possibly forgive someone who did that? He tried to murder a member of your congregation. And he said, well, the Justice Department's job was to come in and hold this person accountable for the crime that he committed. And they did that. They did their job. My job as a Christian is to acknowledge what he did, be honest about it, and to love him and forgive him. And the whole church behind him was like, amen, that's, what we're, that's why we're here. The reporter was completely outraged and she was like ready to get the, the interview done. But it was just this incredible picture of what you're talking about, that there is a way for us to love the person who's committed this crime by holding them accountable and forgiving them and engaging with them in moments of compassion and honoring their story in this. Crass as it is, I think your attempt to evaluate trafficking as an actual market feels true to the experience. We are talking about buying and selling. It just is the case that we're buying and selling human beings. You have made a judgment that you can be most effective by pouring your energy into one aspect of that market and doing your best to source other folks that are also interested in mitigating the harm that traffickers do. Tell me more about other aspects of the market. You've got supply, consumer demand. How does the Trafficking Institute relate to organizations tackling this problem from a different angle? You know, I mentioned that there are these organizations that are trying to reduce the vulnerability of potential victims and then other organizations that are doing a great job with aftercare, caring for survivors. And we've made the decision that we are not going to be a holistic organization. We actually want to be just very disciplined about focusing in on what is our area of greatest expertise. So our area of greatest expertise is actually building these enforcement units that move upstream and stop the traffickers. That has a tremendous impact on the trafficker, him or herself, that impacts the market because we see that that not only impacts the traffickers that are arrested and their victims that are freed, 
but it also has this deterrent effect that ripples through that market where it now becomes too risky for many risk-sensitive traffickers to participate in this and they abandon the forced label model that they're using. And that means that not only are their victims freed, but the future stream of victims that would have otherwise spent years in this trauma or trying to recover from it. Because once you've gone through that trauma, it takes a long, long time to be able to recover from it. Are then able to at least access some of the goods and resources that are being pumped into the developing communities to serve them. And I think that's the tragedy that we've seen is some of our partners who are doing lots of good work in terms of clean water or bringing great education. The girl effect has been this amazing way to educate girls in the community. We see tremendous economic benefits from that. And then we find out that, well, one of the reasons why girls aren't going to school is because they're trapped in a brothel or they're being sexually assaulted on the way to school. And so in a sense, trafficking is sort of acting as this bottleneck that's choking out access to so many of the good, otherwise really smart development programs, the work that the church is doing, sometimes in the very communities where they are. And so we can wedge up in that bottleneck by doing that. And that allows us to partner with them in helping them to be more effective, these other organizations. And then we also partner with aftercare organizations who care for victims. That's not our area of expertise. There are others who are as passionate about that as our team is about having the expertise to do the law enforcement piece. The whole can be strengthened by being really good at your part and trusting that others are going to get really good at their part and then presumably asking people to pay attention to those organizations as well. I think that's right. What we really want is a holistic response from all the community to trafficking. So we don't want to sort of say, oh, aftercare is really important. Trying to reduce the vulnerability of potential victims isn't. Or law enforcement is what's important. Aftercare isn't. We have to see these false dichotomies that emerge in this space. We actually need all of these to effectively respond to trafficking. The challenge that I see is that some organizations want to try and do everything. They want to be holistic. And I think that can sometimes paper over a lack of discipline and being focused on what's the specific area of expertise that we are bringing, because each of those areas requires expertise to do well. We can partner together with others who have complementary expertise to create a holistic response to the trafficking challenge. It reminds me of a sort of impulse that I think we feel in a lot of our churches where folks want to be missionaries at times that are also bad neighbors, (laughs) meaning there's a desire for a certain type of impact, but a negation of the reality of lived experience. You haven't got good at the easy stuff first. Part of what I find so compelling about your story is the need to marry passion with actual skill and not see those two things as working against each other. But ultimately resourcing each other for a full life. What do you think the church should be paying attention to that it's not paying attention to? One of the things that I've seen that I'd love to see the church grow in is the way in which we care for especially single moms. It's an incredibly, incredibly challenging job to be a single parent under the best circumstances. For a lot of single parents, even when the church is thoughtful of them, you have a season where you're sort of bringing dinners by or helping out. The church is, I think, pretty good at handling sort of acute moments of tragedy. Someone has a death in the family, you know, some tragedy happens. People sign up, they bring meals, they show up, they support, they call, they check in. But these longer term chronic challenges, you've got to really build a relationship with a kid. You can't just show up every so often. Meals for a few weeks will help for a bit, but it's not actually transforming. 
And I know that there are some churches who have been really bold. There's a church in D.C. that basically said, we want to shut down the orphanage in this community by making sure that every single kid that doesn't have a parent is adopted. And we're going to do that. We're going to adopt. We're going to do foster care. We're actually going to engage in that. And I think for a lot of Christians, they feel like, whoa, that's a big commitment. Like, I don't know if we're ready for that. And maybe that's not for me. But to have like a whole community that does that is really, as we talk about, especially valuing life and how important that is. And mothers who made tough decisions, who have kids that they're trying to raise on their own. I think that's an area where there could really be a transforming impact and great joy, I think, for families who participate in that. We all have a really hard time sticking with problems that we can't fix or sticking with people in situations that aren't immediately fixable. Recognizing that this is a condition that's not going to go away. And yet I'm called to be with this person as my brother or sister. It seems totally right to me. Part of the logic of our world is that we are most committed to things that we can see tangible results quickly and our work becomes an efficient means of achieving a result. And when you have situations wherein there's a sense that this could get better, but it's not going away, it becomes really difficult to sustain the energy to care for folks. And I think that's a widely shared phenomenon. I think there's a similar challenge with those who are struggling with same-sex attraction in the church. A friend of mine, I thought, put it really powerfully saying, if we're going to ask them to be celibate or to not be in a same-sex sexual relationship, how do we create viable alternatives of non-sexual intimacy that can be satisfying in a deep way? Because we're not really doing that. I'm not just talking about being welcoming at church. How do we create even sort of environments or families or living situations where they can be deeply known and there's a sense of belonging or connection of lots of the different other kinds of intimacy that often come in a marriage, but can come through other sources. And it's not just a negation. We're not asking people to just shut down some aspect of themselves. Yeah, We're asking them to live fully into forms of intimacy that can be incredibly powerful. I think you're totally right on that. Vocation in the Common Good is a production of New City Commons and the Narrativo Group. This episode was produced by Mike Cosper and Philip Lorish. It was edited by T.J. Hester, and it was mixed by Mark Owens. 